Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And we'll pause and stop there for our text this morning. The supreme purpose of God in sending his son Jesus to the cross and then the gospel message that followed that uh, death and resurrection and the gospel that would be preached to the world uh, after it. The purpose of that is not that God might um, call humanity into a religion. He didn't send his son into the world so that each of us could uh, in some way ascribe to um, a creed that we just profess a belief in and that Jesus would kind of gain some sort of a market share in spiritual things in the world and have a, a, a segment of humanity that believes in Christ and therefore we call ourselves Christians and we do certain things and say certain things and go certain places at certain times and this is just what we do. That's not why God sent his son into the world. He didn't call us for a religion, but rather he called us into a relationship with himself. His supreme desire was to reveal himself to humanity. And that's what God does. That's what he did. He wants us to know him, and that's what we have been called into. And, and for those of us that have heard his voice, and anyone 
can hear the voice of God calling them into that relationship. For those of us that have responded to that and have entered into this relationship that we've been called into, two things have become certainly clear, or at least they become certainly clear very shortly after we begin knowing him. Number one is that our past is changed, that there's something in our life that no longer is what it once was. We're different. Our sins have been forgiven. They've been cast as far as the east is from the west. And the east and the west never touch each other, meaning God has completely separated us from our past. And those things are washed away. And we come to an understanding, a realization of that when we come to know him. The other thing that is very certain to us upon beginning this relationship is our destiny. And that is that we're going to heaven. We realize that that doesn't depend on anything that I have done or ever will do, but it rests completely on what he has done, that it stands on the cross, that because of Jesus paying the price for my sins and absorbing in himself the wrath of God that my sin deserved, and then the gift of God giving to me the righteousness of Christ, that is what assures me a place in his kingdom. And that becomes very clear as we begin to walk with him and know him. Our past has changed. Our future is secure. But the thing that remains obscured to us or the thing that remains difficult to us is the present tense. Why is it that he didn't just save me and then bring me into that eternity where I'll enjoy him forever? Why am I still here? What does God want to do with my life in the here and now? And I can become extremely confused when I think about what does God want with my life? What is his will for me? And what is, my, what is his plan? Now, the Bible is absolutely clear that he does have a plan for every one of us that have put our faith and our trust in him. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Again, a verse that many of us have heard many times. God speaks through the prophet and he says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to bring you to an expected end. Meaning that God has some place, a destination, while we're yet here on earth, that he is preparing for us, that he has planned for us. The Apostle Paul says the same things in different words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says that we, the believer, you and I, that we are his workmanship. That is, he's doing something. He's working something in our lives. We're his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has before ordained or planned that we should walk in them. In other words, again, God has a plan. There's something that he is preparing us for. There's something that he wants to do with our lives, and it is very specific. It's not generic. It's not categorized into, well, these people will go here and these people will go here. But as individual as our faces and our thumbprints and everything else about our lives, so also God has a very specific intent for every one of us, and it's some place that he wants to bring us to. Well, the question that that leaves me with is how in the world do I discover what that is? How do I figure out what God has planned for my life? Because I always have this sinking feeling somewhere inside that even though those things are true, I'm missing it. 
that I'm not really there or I'm not there yet, so how do I find it? Well, the book of Ephesians, where our text comes from this morning, is written by the Apostle Paul to one of the strongest first century churches uh, that, that, that were there. It was a church that was planted by the Apostle Paul himself, and he spent more time with the Christians in Ephesus than he did any of the other churches that he was a part of. He spent three years with them. And he only wrote one letter to the Ephesians. It's the one that we have in front of us here. And it's not very long, only six chapters. And it divides very neatly into three segments. And what the Apostle Paul does, or his objective or reason for writing this letter, was to describe the Christian life to the Christian by, by just giving us the simplicity of understanding in the context of three things that are true for every single one of us. And so the first segment of the book of Ephesians is where we are seated. For three chapters, he explains to us that there is a chair in heaven with our name on it that we're already sitting in, even though we haven't gotten to heaven yet. And what he describes in chapters one, two, and three are all of the blessings and privileges and rights that are already ours because of the fact that we're seated in that chair, at least in God's mind. Now, the beautiful thing about that is that when God gives someone a seat, that's their seat. And if you and I are seated in heaven and that seat entitles us to certain things, then those things are true. They're universally true for every one of us. And so Paul lays that out. This is where we are seated in Christ Jesus. We understand that. That's part of our past. That's what God has done for us. The second part of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and the beginning of chapter 6, is the walk of the believer. That is, I'm in this world now. I know where I was. I know where I'm going. But today, right now, I'm walking through this world. And I'm on a path. And I'm hopefully going somewhere. But I have no clue what I'm doing or how I'm going to get where I'm supposed to go. So what do I do? And that's what he answers in chapters 4, 5, and the beginning of 6 as he talks about the walk now of the believer. Then the third part of Ephesians, the end of chapter 6, is where we stand. That is that there is a current and there is a, a pressure that is seeking to pull us away constantly from the things of God. And God has given to us everything that we need to stand against the pressure of that current and to remain where we are, where we're standing as believers, our stance or position. And so to sit, to walk, and to stand. And that summarizes the entirety of the epistle. But where we are here in chapter 5 in these verses is right in the middle of this section on our walk. And why that matters to us this morning is because every one of us here wants to know what the will of God is for our lives. I know that I want to know what he, what he made me for, and I want to walk in that. I want to receive all that he has for me. I don't always know how to get there. And so this part of scripture becomes extremely valuable to me because it helps me to know how to walk in such a way that I might find myself where he ultimately wants to lead me. And I know that's his intent and I know that's what he wants. So how does he do that? And how do I discover what God has for my life? One of God's favorite illustrations that he uses in describing his relationship with humanity is that of a shepherd who is keeping watch over sheep. He uses that illustration throughout the whole Bible, from Genesis all the way through until Revelation. In Genesis chapter 49, 
It's in verse 24. Jacob is speaking by the spirit of God and prophesying over each of his sons. And he references God when he's speaking to his son, Joseph. And he says, from thence, or the God of Jacob, from thence is the shepherd of Israel and the stone thereof, calling God the shepherd over his people. A little bit later on, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, Isaiah, by the spirit of God says, behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Again, most of us are familiar with Psalm chapter 23, that famous Psalm penned by David, King David, where he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and then describes what it means to be led through his pastures and by his still waters and corrected by his rod and his staff. And it really develops this picture of God as the shepherd over his people. In the Gospel of John chapter 10, the words of Christ are recorded, where for a full chapter, he takes the same illustration. And he looks at the people and plainly speaking on behalf of his father, he says, I am the good shepherd. And for a whole chapter, he highlights what it means for God to be the shepherd in the lives of his people. And he says something incredibly insightful in John chapter 10 in verse 3 concerning this relationship that we have with him in this way. He says, to him, the porter or the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, that is God our shepherd, Jesus our shepherd, and he calls his own sheep by name and then he leads them out. Now I want you to pay attention to that for just a minute because oftentimes I wish that God would just send me a text message or that he would send an email or give me a phone call or write something on the wall that there would be some kind of a specific indication concerning what his will is for my life, for a day or in a situation or for a season or even in the broad picture. God, just let me in on things. Speak so that I know. And what Jesus is saying is that it doesn't really work like that. He says, my way in your life as a shepherd is that first of all, I earn your trust. My sheep hear my voice. Sheep know the voice of their shepherd. And so I earn your trust. And when you hear my voice, then I will lead you. So there's a response on our part in trusting him. And then there's a following as we look at him and go where it is that he leads us. Now, I have never, ever in my lifetime gone out for a hike with my kids or gone backpacking in the woods or just out for a walk in the woods quietly and seen a sheep in the wild. Have you ever? No, and and if you do see that, take a picture of it because you will never see that again. Not even the same sheep in the same location. You might find a carcass, but you'll never see it again because sheep are not wild animals by nature. They were made to have a shepherd. That's the way that God designed it. And so by likening humanity unto sheep and him being our shepherd, he's letting us know that we need him but he's also telling us that he's willing to lead us if it is that we will find it in ourselves to follow. Now, there are two things that are absolutely imperative for God to lead us as his sheep. In fact, for any sheep to be led of a shepherd, two things are are imperative. Number one is that they be in the pasture of that shepherd. 
If that sheep is outside of that pasture, then he's outside of the place where he can hear the voice and the call and be led of that shepherd. He second of all has to be in the path. If that shepherd is going somewhere and the sheep aren't following or they're going in a different direction, then they're not going to end up where it is that shepherd is ultimately leading them. So pasture and path are both essential ingredients if you and I as his sheep are going to find ourselves in the center of his will. Now, what does that have to do with Ephesians chapter 5? Everything. And here's why. Because what the apostle gives to us in these 25 verses is he gives to us, first of all, the pasture. He defines for us what it is to be in the Lord's pasture. And then secondarily, in the second half of the passage, he gives to us the path. That is, if we're going to follow him, what steps do we take where he walks that we might follow, that we might ultimately find ourselves in the place that he's leading us to be? And so, first of all, the pasture in verses 1 through 11. Now, without going through and developing everything that he said within those 11 verses, he summarizes for us and he boils things down into such simplicity. He says essentially that there are only two pastures in this whole world that a human being can find themselves in. One of those pastures is called darkness. And the pasture of darkness is defined by not physical boundaries, but by moral behaviors. And the moral behaviors that make up the path of darkness are the sins of the world, the sins of our flesh, the ways of our old life, the things that we were prior to our coming to Christ. The behaviors that are in that are the sexual uncleanness, the covetousness, the going after of things that have nothing to do with what God would want for our lives at all or that would do good for our lives, but going after things completely that we would want to fulfill the desires of our flesh and of our mind. He calls that the pasture of darkness. The other pasture that that he says, and this would be the Lord's pasture that he is calling us into, he calls that pasture light. And the pasture of light is defined, again, not by the physical boundaries of a location, but rather by the moral boundaries of behaviors that we give ourselves to. And he describes the pasture of light using these words in those verses. He says, first of all, in verse 1, that we're to be imitators of God as dear children with Christ as our example. That's what he says in verses 1 and 2. And so to be in the pasture of light meaning that we're interested in the things of God and the ways of God and that we're ever seeking to set ourselves in a place to be imitators of those things with Jesus as our example. Very simple. We follow our shepherd by his voice and by his example. The second thing that he tells us concerning the pasture of light is in verse 11. He says, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. There are things in every one of our lives that we encounter on a daily basis or from time to time that we don't know if what I'm doing in this or the way I'm going in this is what God would want me to do. Is this behavior acceptable? The Bible isn't absolutely clear. And when it comes to those things, the Bible would say, don't be just indifferent and just think that everything is just okay, even if the Bible doesn't spell it out exactly, but rather prove it out in your relationship with him, whether or not that's something that he wants for your life or not. And so as he leads your life and you determine, you know what, this is good for me, this is bad for me, walk in those things. 
Be obedient to what he has for you. There are times when God says, this is okay for this Christian or this Christian in this circumstance, but it's not okay for this one. And it doesn't have anything to do maybe with the moral uh, aspect of it, but maybe just the plan that I have for your life. And God leaves many things in his relationship with us open to that so that we'll seek him and know him and not just get a list of right and wrong and then leave God out of the picture. He wants us to know him. And so we prove what's acceptable. And then once we know his will for our lives, we walk in those things. And then he says in verse 11 concerning this pasture of light, he says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Meaning that once you've determined that this is dark and this is light, then choose what's light. And he leaves that with us. He gives us the freedom to choose where it is that we're going to spend our time, what pasture we're going to dwell in. And he encourages us greatly to dwell within the pasture that is called light because God wants to do good for us and that's where goodness abides. But then he moves on in the second half of uh, the passage from verses 12 then all the way through 25 and it really stretches a little further even beyond that. And he begins to now define not just the pasture, but then also the path. That if the walk of the believer or my behavior in this life makes a difference where I'm going to end up, whether I end up in the will of God, which is good, or in my own thing, which is bad. If that depends anything on the behavior and the choices that I make, then what choices should I make? And so the Apostle Paul gives to us here a bunch of things in these verses. You get scared when you say a bunch of things, right? You want to hear like three things, or, but there's a bunch of things, but they're, they're, they're fast and successive. But he tells us things that we are to give ourselves to or to make attributes of who we are so that we can find ourselves in the center of his will. So what are they? He tells us, first of all, in verse 15, he says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now, the word circumspect is an incredibly uh, um, It's just one of those super words that when you start to unpack it and realize what it means, the word circum implies circle or circumference. And the word spect is a separate word that means vision. And so what he's basically saying to us here is that we're to have a vision, a clarity about everything that's going on around us. Circumvision, circle vision. We're to know what's going on in the world. We're not to be unwise. We're not to bury our head in the sand and be foolish, but we should be aware of where we are in the world, what's going on in the world around us, what's going on in society, what's going on in our families, what's going on in our spirit, what God is doing, what he's speaking, what's going on even in the the, the realms of warfare, to, to just understand, to have a sense of what's going on in spiritual things. Paul says that that is something that each of us should be giving ourselves to, at least in part, that we should walk circumspectly. And then he adds to that uh, in the same verse, or in verse 16, rather, by saying, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Um, he's, He's essentially saying there, beware of time wasters in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of time wasters that can attach themselves to our lives, can't they? 
The, the little things that, that amount to absolutely nothing that we can give ourselves to, that, that if we were to someday know how much time we wasted with those things, it would make us throw up to realize how much of, the, much of them there were. I was listening to the radio yesterday with my wife in the car as we were driving, and uh, there was a testimony of a teenage girl who uh, accidentally d- destroyed her smartphone. And she made the decision that um, she would replace it with a flip phone. So she purchases a flip phone, and she uses it for a little while, and then she was giving some uh, feedback to that experience of having switched from the one to the other. And she said, you know, I, I didn't realize when I had a smartphone the amount of pressure that that was putting upon my life trying to keep up with everything on Facebook and Instagram and the emails and all of the things that were constantly there pressuring me to take my attention at that moment and that that I would give it to it. And she said, when I switched to a flip phone, I found that there was a whole lot less pressure and I was a whole lot more present. And I like that. I thought, that's good. There are so many things in our lives that are taking us out of the present and putting us into things that are at the end of the day, nothing more than just pure time wasters. And what Paul is saying to us here is that, listen, that yes, we are sheep and we're headed somewhere, but time is of the essence and don't waste it. It's an asset and use it to the best of your ability. And so walk circumspectly. Don't be stupid. Don't be ignorant about what's going on around you and don't waste time. He says also in verse 18 concerning the steps of the wise, he says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit. Now he uses wine as the specific means of intoxication here, but the context of the entire verse lends itself to the fact that intoxication can come from other sources other than just alcohol. Now alcohol specifically is a detriment to spiritual things. And the reason for that is this, is that alcohol is a depressant in the body. We take it in and it removes us or our our acute awareness of reality in some sense. That's why people use it, because they want to get away from reality. The problem is you can't get away from reality. Reality is reality. And at the end of the day, we all deal in reality. And so to try to escape from it in some way is to just be putting off something that's coming whether we like it or not. But it also uh, intoxicates us from the thing in a sense wherein now we've opened ourselves up to do things that have further consequences that will remove us from the place that God wants us to be. And Paul says, don't let there be anything in your life at all, whether it be wine or a pursuit of money or power or hobbies or things or or place, whatever it might be. If it's inebriating you from seeing sober things and keeping your eyes on heavenly things, then remove it from your life because it's not gonna lead you in the things of God. Now, on the contrary to that, he says, rather be filled with the Spirit. And if alcohol is a depressant in the body of a believer, the Spirit very much is a stimulant. That as I'm filled with the Spirit of God, that is the person of God, is alive and at home in my heart, flowing in and flowing out. My vision is increased. I understand spiritual things. The word of God makes sense. The will of God is clear. His leading and direction makes sense. I can hear his voice more, more accurately. There's, there's a sense of purpose that's constantly driving my life that rises me above the circumstances of this world and sets me in a place where I'm like the eagle who's soaring 
constantly just looking down on, on, on what's going on and not flapping, trying to constantly figure it out. Now, the beautiful thing is this, is that every single person who's put their faith in Christ, it is our birthright to be filled with the Holy Spirit upon the asking as often as we do. Jesus said, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? In this verse here, it's phrased in the form of a command. He says, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in the continual tense, meaning be ye being filled continually with the Holy Spirit. Meaning if God commands it, that it's something that's to be happening in my life, then in my asking of it, he's going to respond by doing it. And so as often as I ask, he responds by filling. We cannot go even a day, even a minute, without the presence of the Spirit flowing in and out of our lives. And yet he gives it to us to ask, and we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He tells us also in verse 19, concerning the steps of the wise, he says in verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That is, that the the default meditation of my heart while I'm just walking through ordinary life, be it that I'm going through my workday or I'm just walking through my house or it's early in the morning or late at night, whenever those neutral down times are or whatever else, that the muttering meditation of my lips is to be psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody within my heart to the Lord. Now, the challenge that that command presents with me is that oftentimes that's contrary to the way that I'm feeling. I don't feel like praising the Lord. I don't feel like singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there certainly isn't a melody that's going on in my heart right now. It's minor key. <laughs> that's, that's really what I'm, what I'm feeling like. And if songs were to be the expression of my heart right now, they wouldn't be described by what Paul just said here in this verse. That's the challenge of it. But here's the reality of it. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, speaking of the work of Christ, and if you're a Christian, Christ is at work in your heart. Notice what he says. He says, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Now, pause right there and just think about those words for just a moment. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Meaning that the reality of what's going on in my heart and in my life right now is described by this is a spirit of heaviness. I'm depressed. I'm deflated. I'm discouraged. That's what's going on inside of me right now. That's the spirit that's overwhelming me. That's how I feel. But what The Lord is saying to us here is that he has given to us a garment of praise to cover the spirit of heaviness, meaning that if everyone were to see you garmentless or naked spiritually, they would see heaviness. They would see discouragement. But God has given you a garment of praise to put over that, meaning that if I choose by faith to praise him in the midst of discouragement and depression, I'm covering the spirit of heaviness with a garment of praise. 
And it might feel like I'm being hypocritical when in actuality I'm being obedient. But here's the result, is that you find that the mouth has power to tell the heart what to do. Meaning that if I obey him and I cover heaviness with praise, then he causes what's going on on the inside to become a reflection of what I'm putting forth on the outside. And in the process of that, we find ourselves replacing mourning with the oil of joy. And it works. And so he calls us to do that. He says it in verse 19. The next thing that he tells us to do, the the, the steps of the wise in verse 20 is that we're to be continually thankful. Notice he says this. He says, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be continually thankful. I have found in my life, uh, I've seen it in myself first, and I've seen it also in others, an incredible dynamic of something that happens. And that is this, is that when I look or when we look at the things that we don't have, that we wish we did, we automatically become blinded from seeing the things that we do. It's a strange thing, but it happens absolutely. When I'm looking at what I don't have, I can't see what I do. But on the contrary, when I give thanks for the things that I do have, what that does in my heart is I become clear-sighted enough to give thanks also for the things that I don't have because I understand it in the context of God's goodwill for my life. God says in the Psalms, he says that he withholds no good thing from those that fear him. Did you hear that? He doesn't withhold from us something that will be good for us. So that means if he withholds something from us, why is he doing it? Because it's not good for us. And and so what that does when we realize it is is it enables us to say, thank you, Lord, not just for the things that you are doing that I have in my life, but thank you also for the things that I don't have in my life. Because if I could see what you see, and if I knew what you knew, then I would do exactly what it is that you're doing. Thankfulness is so important when it comes to us walking in God's will for our life. Because when we become unthankful, we become wandering. We start to say, well, God doesn't care about my life. He doesn't see this thing that I want or this thing that I need. He's obviously withholding it from me so I could do it better myself. And we find ourselves walking off the path. And to be continually thankful continually keeps us in the place where we're trusting him even though the circumstances maybe tell us that that doesn't make sense. We're to be continually thankful. In verse 21, he gives to us another And that is that we're to never underestimate the value of submission. Notice in verse 21, he says, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. I think one of the hardest words for human beings to endure is this word submission because it implies bondage if you look at it the wrong way. When we think of being submissive to someone, especially someone that we don't want to be submissive to, it means the limitation of our freedom. If I have to do what a tyrannical boss is telling me to do or demanding of me, or if I have to do what a tyrannical government or a tyrannical head of household or a tyrannical spouse on either side, if I have to submit to that in some way, then then that restricts my freedom. And our natural inclination is to kick against this whole concept of submission. 
But submission is actually a beautiful thing for two reasons. Because first of all, submission is the key to authority. If we're not in submission to those whom God has put over us, then it restricts the authority that we have in the places of our life where God's given us to be an authority. The centurion who came to Jesus understood that. Remember, he came to Jesus and he said, Lord, my son, he's sick, he's going to die, and I'd love it if you came to my house. And Jesus says, I'll come. And the guy said, wait. He says, you don't have to come. He says, I'm a man under authority. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to this one comes, and he comes. And he says, I know that if you speak the word, just say it, my servant will be healed. You don't even have to come to my house. You can just say it. And you read that and you go, what in the world is he talking about? I'm a man under authority, yet I say to this one, go, and he goes. What does that have to do with Jesus' words in any way? Here's what it has to do with. That Roman centurion understood how submission and authority go hand in hand. When I speak to my servant, he obeys, not because I'm saying it, but because of who I'm submitting to. I answer to Caesar. And because I'm speaking on behalf of Caesar, when I speak, that man moves. And what he was saying to Jesus is he was saying, you're submitted to your father, the God of all flesh. And because you're under his authority, if you only speak the word, the healing will go forth whether you come or not. And do you know that Jesus commended that centurion's faith? It's one of only two times in Jesus' entire ministry that he marveled at someone's faith. And it was a Roman centurion because he understood how submission and authority go hand in hand. So submission is beautiful. The other reason that submission is beautiful is because it's a tool that God uses to lead us into his will for our lives. He uses the people that are over us, even the ones that aren't good and gentle, to do things in our lives that position us to be in the right place at the right time so that he can do what he's been willing and wanting to do for us all along. And when we remove ourselves from that situation because we don't like the discomfort of being in submission, we remove ourselves from God's work to bring us into the place that we ultimately need to be. And thus it's a tool for God. And Paul says, don't underestimate the value of submission or give in to the temptation of taking your life into your own hands because you don't like the present circumstance. And then finally, the last thing that Paul tells us here concerning the path that leads to God's good and perfect will for our lives is in verses 22 through 25 and then beyond. And that is that we're to keep things right between us and our spouse. And that's an incredibly important thing to God. When he looks at a married man or a married woman, he doesn't see one person, he sees two. And one of the prerequisites For his will to unfold in either of those two lives or in the two together is that there be a unity and a harmony between those two people. It's very important to God that it does. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter speaking to husbands and wives, he says to them, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. He says, don't be bitter against your spouse so that your prayers are not hindered. If there's a rift in the marriage, it interrupts the harmony between you and heaven and the leading of the Lord within your life. It's interesting to me that when God came to Abraham in Genesis uh, and he was going to give to him the next step of the plan that he had for him, it's in Genesis chapter 18, verse 9. Before giving Abraham 
the, 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 the revelation of what was to be next in his life, the first question that he asked was, where is Sarah, your wife? Before doing business on anything pertaining to his will, it's important that things are right between us and our spouse. And so what's the instruction? Is that if we're not right this morning between us and our spouse, and there's something we can do about it. There's not always something, if you're married, you understand. There's not always something that you can do about it. But as much as it's in you, make sure that that is in harmony and that that's operating the way that it's supposed to be. Oftentimes what can happen in a marriage is that there can be just this little tiny splinter of something that can happen that can birth this little tiny, almost invisible resentment, this root of bitterness that just starts this little, little, little thing. And you think, well, okay, well, this is going to pass or I'm just going to have to live with this or this is just the dynamic of things now and I'm just going to let this thing go. But let me tell you this. If you just let this thing go and don't do everything in your power to bring things out in the light and get things right the way that they're supposed to be. I can tell you five years from now, maybe eight years from now, maybe 10 years from now, you will look at a train wreck, what became a train wreck, and you'll be able to pinpoint right back to that point where that little tiny sliver was undealt with. And there's so many things in our lives that are like that, aren't they? Just, just those little things. And, and I know for a fact this morning that there's someone here that's hearing me say these things and, and you're frustrated hearing it because you're saying, yes, I know, but there's nothing I can do. Whether it's something that's in me that I can't shake and get rid of or whether it's something that's in them or something in between us, it cannot be dealt with. Do not deny the power of God in your life or in your marriage. There is a scene in Narnia, the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Not in the, it's not in the films, but it's in the book when the young boy Eustace is turned into a dragon, and it's a picture of you know, what we are apart from Christ. You know, we're supposed to be humans, but we're just dragons. And when he has this encounter with Aslan, where Aslan's going to turn him back into a boy, into a human, tender, Aslan comes to him and he says this. He says, Eustace, peel off one of the layers of your scales. And Eustace pulls off one layer. And underneath it, another layer just appears. And then Aslan says, peel that one off too. And he peels off the second layer and another layer appears. And he says, now peel off the third. And he peels off the third and another layer appears. And Aslan looks at him and he says, do you understand? He said, with you, it is impossible. But with me, all things are possible. And then he changed him back into a man. And there may be things going on in your life this morning or in your marriage this morning that are too powerful for you to remove or deal with by yourself. And that's true. You cannot do it. But if you will bring it to him and you'll start with your own heart, bring it to him in absolute surrender, he can do all things. And something that you have tried a thousand ways to remove from your life and have not been able to do it, he is able to do it. And without him, there's absolutely no hope of us doing it in ourselves. In conclusion, the will of God for every single one of our lives is to do good for us. That's what he wants. In John chapter 10, again, that chapter where Jesus likens himself unto the shepherd, Jesus utters these words. In verse 7, it says, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, 
but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. What Jesus is saying to us here is this. Listen, if you this morning will hear the call to be in his pasture and to walk in his path, then these four things will be true about you no matter what. Number one is that you will be saved. You will have passed from darkness to light, from death to life, from hell to heaven, from self to death, and life in him. You will be saved. The second thing that he promises for anyone to walk in his path is freedom. He says they will go in and out. And what that means to a sheep who's following a shepherd is it means that there will be a freedom in your life that he will know that he has your heart in such a way that he can grant freedom to you in things and allow that freedom because he knows that your allegiance is with him. The third thing that he promises to every single one that will walk in his path, the beautiful promise, he says that you will find pasture. Do you know what pasture is to a sheep? It's paradise. When a sheep comes out of the, 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 the gate, and it's been in the barn with all the other sheep and it's been smelling those smells and, and hearing those sounds and seeing those sights and it's been cooped up in there and the shepherd calls and that sheep follows the shepherd through the gate and the gate opens up and the sunrise is coming up over the horizon behind an azure sky and the dew is bouncing off the light in the morning field and he sees the tall grass and before him just open as far as the eye can see are just pastures to graze in. You know what a sheep thinks? He thinks this is what I was made for. And the will of God for every one of his people is that he might lead you into the place where you can look at your life and find yourself in a situation where you can say, this is what I was made for. And that might look different for every, in fact, it does, it looks different for every single one of us here. As different as your thumbprint or your face print or your personality. He knows you and me. And his desire is to bring us into pasture. And then finally, fourthly, the promise that holds for anyone who will walk in his path is he says that I will give you life and life more abundantly. It's not just that we live. It's that we live a quality of life that we're pleased with. And that's what blesses him when he can look at our lives and he can say, this is what I made you for. And as much as it delights you to find yourself here, it delights me that much more to see you in it. And this was my intent and my will for you all along. Every single one of us here, and the musicians can come as we close the service this morning, but every single one of us here today is on a path. Every one of us. There's nobody here that is not in a pasture and not on a path. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is what pasture am I in and what path am I in and where does it lead? Where does where I am walking right now lead to ultimately in the end? Are you in his pasture this morning? I know on a Sunday morning in a group like this, there are some that aren't. There's some that have yet to put their trust in him. There's some that have yet 
to have had him win their trust. I'm here to tell you this morning that he is a trustworthy shepherd, that he knows how to lead his sheep. You might think that you're smart enough to make it on your own, that you don't need a shepherd, that you can do it. I'm telling you that you can't. If there was actually a flock of sheep, and let's say that you were just a human bystander and observer, and you, you knew nothing of what was going on in the minds of those sheep, but in the minds of those sheep, there was one sheep that was smarter than all of the other sheep. And that smart sheep, and he really is. I mean, he's got an IQ way beyond any of the other sheep. And he looks at those other sheep and he says, look at all these dumb sheep. I don't need to follow that shepherd. I'm capable. I'm smarter than every single one of them. And I can do my own thing. And I know that I'm going to be okay because I'm smart enough to do it without a shepherd. And so that sheep just kind of went, wandered away and just kind of did his own thing. And you were the human observer watching this whole thing happen. Do you know what you would conclude looking at that scene? You would say, that is the stupidest sheep I have ever seen. <laughs> because you know that that sheep can't survive without a shepherd. And for any person that thinks that they can exist outside of God's shepherding hand and that they can lead their own life, all of heaven looks on in all of that person's wisdom and intelligence and they say, that is the stupidest person we have ever seen. And it's just a waiting for that person to hit a train wreck. He is a trustworthy shepherd. You can trust him with your life. Listen to the voice of God crying out through creation through your conscience, through your circumstance, through the fact that you're sitting here this morning. Don't be stubborn. Give your life to him. You may be in the pasture, but you've strayed from the path. You've said, he's not doing it the way I thought. He's not doing it in the timing I thought. I can do it better myself. Perhaps this morning, the spirit of God might just knock just a little bit and say, hey, please avoid impending doom. Come back. Come back. Make the adjustments. The servant of Abraham says the wisest words, if we can hear them. God had prospered his journey, and he was rejoicing in it. And he said these words. He said, I, being in the way, the Lord led me. And that is as sure for us this morning as it has ever been for any Christian in any generation. Walk in his ways, you will find abundant life.